turn to Luke 18. We will read it off the wall together. Luke 18, 31 to 34. Jesus took the twelve aside and he told them, We're going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be handed over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. On the third day, he will rise again. The disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them, and they didn't know what he was talking about. They didn't know what he was talking about. They just didn't understand. Now, at Easter and at Christmas time, it is our tradition here at NRCC to rehearse our story, to retell some dimension of the story. We've heard it, and we've heard it, and we've heard it, but it's always good to go back over it. And what we do is we highlight some particular aspect of the story each time. And I've come to the conclusion we'll never run out of aspects to highlight. There's plenty of them. Today we're highlighting this uh, aspect, the experience of the disciples leading up to the death and resurrection of Jesus. And primarily this point, they didn't have a clue what he was talking about. (laughs) They didn't understand what was going on. Many times Jesus had spoken to them in advance. This wasn't the first time they'd heard it. And he, said, he pulls them aside and says, I have something really important to tell you. I'm going up. We're going to be mocked. I'm going to be insulted. I'm going to be flogged. I'm going to be killed. And the words of the prophets are going to be fulfilled. But on the third day, I'll rise again. And he'd said it in another place. You tear down this temple, and in three days, I'll rebuild this temple. And they didn't understand it then, and they didn't understand it this time when Jesus said it. They just didn't understand, didn't know what he was talking about, the text says. Now, I can relate to this. I've had times in my life, as I'm sure you have, where I really didn't understand what was going on, what was being talked about. It was particularly true, vividly true, during my college years, because during my college years, I had no idea what I was going to do with my life. So consequently, I was bouncing around from class to class. What I would do, the university I went to had a very large schedule of classes, so I would open it and I would start thumbing my way through. And I would say, hmm, that looks interesting, I think I'll take that. Hmm, that looks interesting, I think I'll take that. It took me a while to get through college, you know. <laughs> my, the dean of students pulled me in one time and said, you know, you have a very broad education, one of the broad... <laughs> However, we do need to get you out of here. It's been six years. Time for you to go. (laughs) But consequently, I was in a lot of classes where I was the visitor among people that this was their major. I would think to myself, huh, sign language, that sounds good. I should take a couple of classes in that. Biology? Hmm. Chinese history. I like that. Organic chemistry. All of these things. So interesting. Because at one time I wanted to be a dentist, at one time I wanted to be a lawyer, then I wanted to be a journalist, then I wanted to work in international affairs, and so I would jump into a class as a visitor with other people that this was their thing. As a result, I always felt just a little bit behind the curve, like uh, maybe something was going on that I didn't fully understand. I was interested in astrophysics. These people were astrophysicists. (laughs) I was interested in Greek literature. These people were majoring in Greek literature. So many times I felt what the disciples must have felt. Huh? (laughs) <laughs> Did I miss the, the day when we talked about that in class? I mean, is something going on? Because if, if I was one of the disciples, I would have said, hand over to be killed. Wait a minute, what are you talking about? This spit on, this cursed, this flogged, this dead thing. I'm just not getting it. What is it you're talking about? Because Jesus, I'm looking at things right in front of us, and I'm here to tell you, you're the one. 
you just healed that blind man. And did you see the crowd's response to you healing the blind man? They're on your side. You're the one who teaches with authority like no one has ever heard before. And I look at the faces on the crowds, and I can tell Jesus, I'm gathering the data, and we're going from glory to glory here, and you're not about to get flogged and killed. They're shouting in the streets for you. So the words of Jesus must have been very disconcerting to the disciples because they couldn't understand what does he mean. They didn't understand what he was talking about. When we rehearse our story, when we retell our story, misunderstanding has to be a big part of it. Missing what God's up to, missing what God is doing, it's a pretty central part of our story. We do it all the time, even still today. And what we do, missing the point, is costly. It's costly to not understand what is truly true. It's costly to not understand how things really work. It costs us dearly in pain, in heartache, in missed opportunities. All that pain, all that tragedy, that also is part of our story. When we rehearse our story, there's a strong element of the pain of missing the point. We've got an Enron executive on trial this week. There's a whole lot of legal posturing going on as to who knew what and when they knew it. But when it's all boiled down, it will come to this issue. It'll be about missing what is true. There are God words floating around us all the time, and we miss them. We don't understand them. In this particular case, they'll be missing God's word about the truth of selflessness, acting on an illusion that what is good for me is good. In this case, we'll be boiling it all down to flawed thinking that says short-term gain trumps integrity and truth-telling. And when we act on these falsehoods, when we act on these points that we've missed, these truths that were not true, it creates a great deal of pain. And in this case, many have suffered the consequences of some who missed the point. It's costly to miss the point. It's costly not to understand I see it happen all the time in marital conflicts. You probably do too. Two people who have plenty of information about each other. They've lived together day in, day in, day out for 10 years, maybe more, perhaps less. If anyone should understand one another, these should understand. And yet so often they completely misunderstand God's truth about the other. They completely miss the substance, the spirit of that other person. She sees only the surface reality of his insensitivity. She sees only the surface, or he sees only the surface reality of some flaw that he sees that she has, and the two become locked in an inseparable combat because they can't hear the truth of God that is spoken about the preciousness of the other. The tarnished grandeur is all they see. They don't understand. And someone could stand right in front of them and say the words, just like Jesus did to the disciples, and, and they'll miss it. They won't understand it. You've seen this happen. We're people that are prone to missing the point. We misunderstand. We're disposed to misunderstanding. Same thing's true of racial prejudice. I hear people say, I'm sure you do too, about some attribute. You know how they are, and they being some group of people, different race. And I've lived in my life around a whole bunch of different races, And most of the time I can say with some degree of certainty that what it is that is spoken about them, those people, usually isn't true. And even if it is, it's usually only a surface level of truth because those uh, generalized remarks miss the God truth. 
They missed the essence of humans. They missed the depth of God's truth about other people, about his value and preciousness. But untrue as it is, nevertheless, when we hold these mistruths, creates tensions and mistrust and alienation and separation. We see it going on in Durham right now. Someone behaved badly. But underneath the behaving badly, there's this issue of missing God's truth about others, about another race of people, and it's creating a tremendous amount of tension. We are point missers. We are misunderstanders. God words swirl around our souls all the time. And even if we're disposed to listen, so often when we finally hear, our response is the response of the disciples. What? Huh? What is, what is he talking about? That doesn't make any sense to me. God words will come and talk to you about being a giving heart, being gracious towards others, being forgiving, being loving. What? Huh? Did you see what they did to me? That, that doesn't make any sense. God word, words will come to you and talk about sacrifice or about selflessness or about being oriented toward other people and being serving and giving as a way of fulfillment in life. And our response will be, huh? What? That just doesn't connect. That doesn't make sense. God words will talk to us about justice and talk about mercy and talk about the indwelling spirit of God that will lead us when to connect to one and when to connect to the other. And it will be what we didn't anticipate. When we think justice ought to be exacted, the Lord will speak about mercy. And when we think mercy should be extended, God will talk about justice. And what? Huh? I didn't understand. We are misunderstanders. But it's not the way God made us. God didn't intend for us to be misunderstanders. He intended for us to be quite the opposite. He intended us for to be wise, for us to be wise. He intended for us to get the point. He intended for us to make our own decisions and to make good ones, to see clearly what's going on and to choose wisely and choose accordingly. If Easter is about anything, we've heard it is about the good news of restoration. The God of the universe has come for people. Come to open, Hebrews tells us, a new and living way for humanity and divinity to now connect. Come to restore, John tells us, newness of life. Comes to open a way that transcends the old, dead way, a way of life where truth is now accessible to the human heart, a way in which understanding is part of our experience in life, a way in which we get it and we act according to to having gotten it. It's a way, Jesus said, of truth and a way of life. And one dimension of that restoration that we celebrate at Easter is the restored capacity to understand, to know what's going on, to make it the way it is. Now, we've got to be fair to the disciples here <clears throat> because the truth of Jesus is a long, long way from the reality of our worlds. It doesn't make any sense where you work to turn the other cheek. It doesn't make any sense where you live to do this forgiving our enemies things. Ours is a world that is unfamiliar and doesn't operate according to the way Jesus says truth is. So, consequently, truth is a really tough thing for us to access because it's so different from the way that we live. Truth is tough. It's difficult to see. It's hard to understand. And to compound matters, being fair to the disciples, Jesus could make it a whole lot easier than he does. You know, he pulls these guys aside and he says, I have something I want to tell you, something of eternal consequence. 
But he doesn't bother to warn them that what he's about to say is going to rock their total world. It's going to change history, and it's going to be a pivot point around which uh, history turns. He doesn't bother to tell them the enormity of what's about to happen. All he says is, I'm going to die. There's going to be some spitting involved. There's going to be some beating involved. I'm going to die. He doesn't give them any of the context. He doesn't bother to tell them that, well, consider this. Their worldview is not that different from our worldview. To them, good is synonymous with pleasant, and success is synonymous with accomplishment. And here is Jesus, who's having a very pleasant experience, and he's having a great deal of accomplishment. Lots of good things happened. People are getting healed. People are being fed. People are being taught. More and more are coming over to him all the time. Accomplishments are happening. This is good. Started with just a band of people, but now, my goodness, all the streets are shouting out the name of Jesus, calling him king. This is good. This is success. And the way that success works in my worldview, as I'm sure it does in the disciples' worldviews, it moves from glory to glory to glory, always getting better, always getting better. And I see where this is going, Jesus. And it's not death and spitting and vlogging. That's not where it's going. It's going somewhere different. And so, Jesus, what you're saying doesn't make any sense. This is success, Jesus. We're on a good track here. This is victory. But Jesus was redefining history, and they didn't know it. Jesus is changing the grounds on which human beings live and operate, and they didn't know it. Something Jesus does a lot changes the very fundamental realities with which we live. Jesus didn't tell them any of that stuff. He didn't go into the history of fallen humanity. He didn't talk about the garden, didn't talk about the curse, didn't talk about the law. He didn't go into contextualizing for them the understanding that the cherished beliefs of the zealots and the cherished beliefs of the Pharisees and the cherished belief of the tax collector are all flawed. He didn't explain the context around his death and his resurrection. No mention about one death defeating death for all time. He didn't say that. He didn't talk about a new and living way being opened up. No, all he talked about was beating, spitting, dying. Could have been a little more clear, I think. (laughs) I would have... I would have given a little more context. Perhaps you're aware that I would have given it more context. (laughs) He could have explained that death is really a paper tiger. He could have said that resurrection will change human reality forever. He could have alluded to the timelessness of what was happening instead of the very focused time sensitivity that they uh, had in their minds. But he didn't. And why do you suppose he didn't? That's what I want to talk about today. Why do you suppose Jesus left so many questions unaddressed, so many queries unanswered, so much unknown? Why do you suppose? I think I know at least one reason. But to answer that, we have to first look at what Easter is about. Like I said, a little context. In the past, I've talked about the mission of Jesus. Jesus coming to us for the purpose of dismantling reality. We've got a box that we live in, and inside, that's our true box. And we know what's true, that's what's inside the box, and we know what's not true, that's what's outside the box. Inside our true box is this truth, that if you walk on water, you drown. Inside our true box is that a few loaves and fishes will not feed 5,000 people. Inside our true box is this truth, sick is sick, dead is dead, blind is blind, And dead is dead, it's not just sleeping. (laughs) But that's inside of our true box. And so Jesus comes and he walks on this earth and he begins to blow up our tangible, practical true box. 
And when he's finished blowing up our tangible, practical, physical world true box, then he begins to work on our soul box. Because he comes and he says things that are not true inside of our true box. He says, vengeance isn't right. Unforgiveness isn't true. Religious righteousness doesn't please God. There goes our true box. Unloving judgment toward other people is a poison on your own soul. There goes our true box. Sin and death are not real, for I have defeated them. He comes and says truths about our soul that say, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. What you have inside your tiny little box, not the way, not true, not life. Now, these great big soul truths, they don't make any more sense than the tangible physical world truths did. doesn't make any more sense to believe that self-righteousness isn't pleasing to God than it does to believe that sick is sick. These things don't seem to make sense to us. Anyone who's ever buried a loved one knows that death certainly seems real. Anyone who has ever been abused by another person knows that vengeance seems pretty right. Anyone who has ever suffered from want knows that a few loaves, a few fish, isn't going to do what we need done. Fear not. Jesus, that doesn't make any sense in the world that I live in. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Jesus, have you ever tried following you? It's not an easy yoke. It's a heavy burden sometimes. So Jesus comes and he speaks these crazy kinds of things that just don't seem to make any sense. And he says, this that I'm speaking is truth and this that I'm speaking is life. And on the surface, he seems like a pretty smart Messiah. <laughs> he does a lot of really nifty tricks that makes us, make us want to pay attention to him and listen carefully. But even when we listen, even when we tune in, it just is hard for us to understand. Jesus, this is crazy talk. It doesn't make any sense. So why? Why does Jesus talk in these obscure ways? Well, not yet. I'm coming to that in a moment. But first, a little more context. <laughs> And that is the nature of religion. Before we can answer the question why, we have to address what we just did, and then we also have to ask, what is the nature of religion? Most people that I know, most religious people that I know, think that the nature of religion is this, getting our lives right, living the right way before God, pleasing God, doing what is good, doing what is virtuous. Being right, being good. Being good human beings. Being good husbands, getting it right. Being good wives, getting it right. Being good parents, getting it right. Praying right, knowing the right Bible truths, applying those Bible truths to our lives in such a way that we live according to true way, a right way. Knowing what is virtue and doing it, knowing what is vice and not doing that. But I don't think the Easter religion is about that at all. In fact... I think the Easter religion is about destroying that. It's about destroying that mental construct that says it's about getting it right. If you look at Jesus, when he went about defining what it was about, Jesus tended to choose people who were predisposed to getting it wrong. If you look at those knuckleheads that he hung around with, you think, you know, I guess maybe it wasn't about getting it right because they really didn't. Getting it right wasn't what Jesus was about. No, for Jesus and for his Easter, it was about God and people 
becoming friends. It was about God and people becoming friends. He said as much in an earlier conversation. He said, I'm not looking for servants. I'm looking for friends. I'm not looking for people who will slavishly do what I say and get it right. I'm not looking for people who will do what I ask them to do because that's what servants do, and servants don't understand. Servants have one objective, and that is they have to get make their master happy. And they make their master happy without any kind of understanding of what's in the master's heart. They just do what they're told to do. They don't know the master's business. They don't know the master's heart. They're just cogs in a system with no understanding, trying to do things right so they can make the man happy. And Jesus said, I don't want that. That's not what I'm here for. I'm looking for something more. I'm looking for friends, people who know me and people who understand me and people who are so close to me that we become familiar with one another and familiar with one another's ways. People who know all about my business, but not because they know my business. They know about my business because they're close to me. I'm looking to show everything to these, my friends, everything that the Father has showed me, he said. I want you to know me well enough to be my friend. If you look up John 15, this is exactly what that conversation says. The images that Jesus uses along the way say the same thing. They're images of romance, images of falling in love, images of sexual energy that draws people together God and people are like a bride and groom who are passionate in their affection one for another. I'm not looking for servants who will do it right. I'm looking for friends. And Easter isn't about helping us getting our act together so that we can be pleasing to God. No, at Easter, Jesus is opening the door for you and for me to become friends with our Maker. Now, that is such an enormous idea that for most we reject it. We don't reject it out of hand. I don't imagine there's anyone here thinking, well, I theologically disagree with that. No, we reject it a different way. We reject it by saying, I can't do that. I can't be friends with the maker of all that is. That is just unimaginable. That is so enormous. That is so big. And so we settle. We settle for something that is not God-sized. We settle for something that is us-sized. And I might have a chance of getting it right. Maybe I can be good. If God helps me, maybe I can be a good husband or be a good wife, pray the right prayers, know the right Bible truths, apply them to my life in just the right way, which is a shadow, not even a shadow. It's a perversion of what God had in mind, of what Jesus' Easter was about. I'm not looking for you just to do the stuff I tell you to do. I'm looking have an authentic, experiential friendship with you. I don't want you just to serve me. I want you to be my friend. I want you to know me and understand me. I don't want you to be in the dark any longer. I don't want you to be clueless anymore. I don't want you to make these big, costly mistakes because you have no idea what's going on. I want you to know what's going on. I want you to know me. And it's for that reason that I, the Son of Man, will be handed over to be mocked, to be spit at, to be flogged, to be killed. And it is for this reason that on the third day I will rise again. And it is for this reason that in my rising I will open the door for you to constantly, eternally have friendship with God. This is the purpose of Easter. So, 
if that is the purpose of Easter, if that is what religion is about, then if it's all about becoming friends with God, then revealing truth slowly, revealing truth obscurely, not explaining everything all up front all at once actually serves to strengthen that purpose. And this might be exactly why Jesus speaks in parables and exactly why Jesus leaves so many questions unanswered and so many queries unaddressed. Because our predisposition is to miss truth. And because of that, and because it's costly when we do, we are compelled to listen carefully to the whispers of God on the wind. We are compelled to monitor carefully the slight movements of the hand of God before us. We are compelled to draw close to our God, to listen keenly, to ask for our Maker to explain what we do not understand. Because truth is hard to catch. It's almost like Jesus is saying that truth is really hard to catch, so I want you to stay close by me. You will miss this because it's so radically different unless you walk right next to me. You become familiar with me and watch the way that I work things out and soon you will understand this counterintuitive reality and you will live it too, but it's going to require you stay right up here under my arm. Stay close by me. And if that's the purpose, then obscurity is our friend because it drives us to our God. And God says, I'll show you truth. It won't even make sense to you. You won't even understand it. But I'll speak it to you. I talked these last few weeks about living at a dimension beyond merely our human limitations. That we don't have to live within these limits. Because one of the central realities of our faith is that the Spirit of God lives inside of you. And you can live beyond your means, beyond your capabilities. But it requires of us Stay close. Draw near. Now, there's a lot of ways I could have applied this, but I've chosen to tell you a story that's very mundane and very practical and very personal. It's actually a story that I've told you before, but I think you'll see from this very mundane reality how it applies across the board, and it has to do with marrying Denise. Marrying Denise is the best decision that I ever made in my life. Well, it's the second best. Yielding my heart to God was the best. Seconded is marrying Denise. Now, had you met the 25-year-old Denise that I got to meet, and you had seen who she was, you would have thought that this decision would have been the easiest decision that I could have ever made. Because she was then, as she is now, a virtuous woman. She was kind and devout. She was accepting of other people and loving of other people. And she was fun, and she was funny, as she is now. She was pretty, as she is now, and she was, as she is now, a pretty good kisser. (laughs) And so you would have thought that the 29-year-old Doug would have thought, this is the easiest decision in the world to make. Why, it's sitting right there in front of me. What else could I do but do this? But it was not. Au contraire. It was one of the most, well, I would say it was the most difficult decision I ever made. I labored through internal upheaval for over a year making that decision. After we had been courting, dating for six months, Denise was ready. (laughs) We didn't get engaged for 18 months, so that extra 12 months was me 
grappling with this internal reality that was going on inside of me. Now, my father had died, so I never got to see what a great marriage was. I understand he was a great man, but I didn't get to see that marriage. I was too young. I was only two when he died. My stepfather, he wasn't such a good man, and so consequently I didn't get to see a good image of what marriage was in that regard. So I I had that going on, but probably the bigger issue was that I had created an interior world for myself that was a mechanism of controlling my environment. I had determined that since the world is unsafe, I will be hyper-vigilant and uh, hyper-industrious, and I will be hyper-devout, and I will control that external world out there by making myself invulnerable to these eccentricities of reality. I will do so by putting firm parameters around around my reality. And so, intuitively, I could understand that bringing Denise into my life was bringing into a factor that would probably not smile upon being controlled. (laughs) And all of a sudden, she represented danger, 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 Will Robinson. (laughs) And so, inside of me, I had been working feverishly for all my life to make myself invulnerable And here I was going to willingly, voluntarily go out and invite this force into my life that would make me exceedingly vulnerable. It just didn't make any sense to have worked so hard to build up these great defenses and then just to open the chink and say, here, come right on in. (laughs) And so I couldn't bring myself to see truth. And so I did what many do. I sought God and I said, Lord, I need your wisdom. Lord, I need your clarity. Lord, I need your understanding. And Had he opened the heavens and deposited a scroll in front of me and I opened it up and it said, yep, you're right, she's the one, (laughs) I probably still (laughs) would have wondered, I wonder if that was God. (laughs) Because it wasn't like God was not answering my pleas for clarity. He was answering my pleas for clarity. Almost universally, there was affirmation of the truth of God words floating to me, of the direction for me. People that I spiritually respected, right, left, and center, were all saying, marry the girl, you knucklehead. What's wrong with you? Slap me on the back of the head. What are you waiting for? What is your problem? What do you, what do you think is going to be better? But I couldn't bring myself to hear those words. And it wasn't even that sometimes I couldn't speak the words out myself. I could. They could come right out of my mouth, like the disciples. They could have spoken back to Jesus what he said. I just couldn't take it in and make it mine. I recognize I was a little kooky. This is one of the times that I went to counseling in my life. And I said, you know, here I am. I am torn. I can speak the truth. I just can't embrace the truth. But even with the truth right there in front of me, I couldn't understand it. I was asking God to talk to me. I was asking God for wisdom. I was asking with my need to know for him to make it very clear. And my response was the response of the disciples. Huh? What? What are you talking about? Well, you know, 18 months is not a short time in a young person's life, and I'm realizing that I'm keeping her off the market, you know, and so I'm realizing that's not that's fundamentally not fair to her, so I set myself a deadline. Every summer I would go to Colorado. I worked when I was in seminary in uh, Colorado as a whitewater rafting guide, and so I would go, and I said, when I come back at the end of this summer, I will have to chirp or get off the twig. <laughs> I have to fish or cut bait. <laughs> I have to make a decision one way or the other. I am either going to ask her to marry me or I am going to break up with her, one of those two things. And so all through the month of August as I'm preparing to come back, there's this internal turmoil. It's just going and going and going. What is your will, God? What is your will, God? What is your will, God? I come back into town in September and I've I've given myself two more weeks and this internal turmoil. What What is this thing, God? What is this thing going on? And I'm 
Finally, in the midst of all this tumult, I recognize a pattern. And here's the pattern. When I quiet myself and I get into my room and I get on my knees and lean on the edge of my bed and I draw close to my God, I am in love with this girl. I am just flat out crazy about her. I just can't wait to be around her. I want to pick up the phone and call her. Then, when I get out of that quiet place and I go out into the world where the noises speak, all of a sudden, I am afraid of this girl. I am afraid that she is just going to wreck my life, and all of a sudden, I become very critical of her, very examining of any slight flaw she might have, and I get away, and I get scared spitless, and I think this is a crazy idea. And then I come back, and I get close to the Lord, and I am just hot for this chick. <laughs> I love this girl. And then I get away from her and I think, oh, this is crazy. What am I thinking? Oh, did you ever think about that trait she has? Well, let me go talk to her about it. I'll just tell her about that trait. <laughs> she was exceedingly patient. You should know this. <laughs> and when I began to see that pattern, that I would get away from God and listen to the noise, I would be overcome with fear. I would be overcome with criticism. I would critique her weaknesses. When I would get close to the Lord, I would just be deeply in love with her. And seeing that pattern, finally in the month of September, I came to the place of saying, I believe I have discerned what God is saying. Now, <clears throat> with approximately 3.5 billion choices, it is theoretically possible that there was a woman out there who was a better fit for me. But I'm hard-pressed to believe that I would have ever found that person. I don't think that there's anyone who would be a better fit for me than Denise. So what's the point? Is the point getting it right? Marrying the right person so that I could be pleasing to God? So that having been pleasing to God, I would be rewarded with happiness and a blissful life of marriage? Well, those things happened. I have a very happy marriage, and I feel blessed and rewarded. I feel, and I feel like I did get it right, and I feel like, but I don't think that was the point. I don't think that was what it was about at all. I think what it was about was draw close to me. Because you don't understand this one. I mean, let me tell you, there's about a million more of them you're not going to understand either. And the only way that you're going to understand it is if you come right up here under my arm. Stay close by me. You are disposed, Doug, to getting this one wrong. But there's a whole lot of other things that you're disposed to getting wrong. You'll miss the truth so many times. You'll be caught up in your illusions and you'll think that those illusions are truth so many times. It'll make so much sense to you to go left when you should be going right. Those things will have such power over you that the only choice that you've got is stay close to me. Draw near to me. Be in my presence. Be friends with me. And it's because of Easter that we can do that. It's because of Easter that this new and living way is even open for us to do just that, to come to him by this new and living way, to draw close to him, to stop depending on our own intellectual prowess to try and figure out the world. It didn't work for the disciples. So often it doesn't work for me. It doesn't work for you. But the pathway to getting to this place of being understanding people of embracing the truth people is the pathway that is born of friendship with God. Draw near to me, for I am the source of truth. Again, so many times in my life, the things that I discern from God are so counterintuitive, 
They just don't make sense. It's illogical to do things. I, I have started speaking saying, that's crazy. Only as I say it, I watch the impact that it has and what God had in mind and what God is doing. And all I was doing was listening to a whisper from having stayed close to God. So many counterintuitive things that are born of truth. Things that wouldn't seem to be true. Now, it's tough for us. We should complain when we get to heaven. It's tough for us living in this physical, tangible, touchable world. Having to stay in touch with the fact that we've got jobs to do and babies to change and reality to live in. And at the same time, staying in touch with this spiritual world. Because what it does for us is it creates so many nonsensical things that are sensical. So many counterintuitive things that are truth. So many things that we wouldn't have believed that turn out to be true. The world counts foolishness so many things that our God counts real. But how in the world are we going to live in this world of tension? Where we have to live in this physical world that says up is down, and we live over here in this world of spirituality where up is up. Black is white? No. Black is black. How do we navigate that tension? The only way to navigate that tension is to be close to our God. The good news of Easter is that it's available. The purpose of Easter was for you to experience it. And that this thing would move, as we've been talking these last couple weeks, away from some texts that we have in a systematic theology book, away from some verses that we know in the Scripture, and this thing would become off of the written page and would become an experiential reality for us. That what we have spoken about today, being friends with God, this abstract conception, this thing that just lives out there in the ether, that just doesn't seem to make any tangible reality, this somehow vague abstraction becomes an experience. And we would say, oh, yeah, I know what you're talking about. I've experienced that thing. I know what it means to be friends with God. In the first service, Pat spoke up, and she said uh, afterwards, you know, all these times that I've got up and I've spent time in Scripture and I, the times that I've spent reading and then the times that I've spent reflecting, she said, I came from a world in which I had to be God's servant or I had to get it right, and everything depended upon it. But by just being with him morning after morning for these many years, I've come to the place where I know what you're talking about, Doug. I know what it means. I can feel what it feels like to be God's friend, to know that God is my friend. This is the purpose of Easter. That this thing that we've talked about becomes your experience, my experience. And so it's been my prayer these days as I've been praying for you in the mornings, Lord, that we would become the friends of God. We become people who know what it is to walk very closely with our God. I pray that for you this Easter time. Lord, I pray just that for our community, that we, as we're looking to be the kind of people who can fulfill mission on the planet, we would first and foremost have you at the epicenter of our souls. That we would have this draw toward abiding with you the desire to be your friend. So, Lord, I ask that you would draw us near to you, that you would open our eyes to the trifles that would try and compete for friendship with you, that you would open our eyes to the distractions that would pull us aside and keep us from even making time to be with you. Lord, that you would help us to find our way into that closeness with you that was bought for us, purchased for us on the cross and sealed when you rose from the grave. 
Lord, I pray that that which was purchased for us would become our experiential reality. I pray that for this community in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would, please prepare your tithes and offerings. And as you're doing that, let us sing together. Together.